Hello and welcome to today's episode of I'm Glad You Asked. I'm Elliot Edeburn. Um, today we sit down and talk with Dr. Emily Berg-Pop, who is a professor of communications at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University, as well as Maya Christensen, who just recently graduated um, from St. Ben's. And today's topic is... How do we consume media responsibly? There's a lot of misinformation out there, as I'm sure everyone is aware of. Um, and we're consuming media constantly, whether it's social media, it's broadcast, it's print journalism. It seems like everywhere we turn, we're consuming something. So everywhere we, have, we turn, boom, everywhere. boom, boom. So we have a great conversation about how to do that responsibly, how to make sure that you are reading things that are facts and not coming from a place of bias or framing. Um, yeah, it was a great conversation. Two really interesting, incredible people. And... Without further ado, enjoy. So with us today, we have Dr. Emily Pop and Maya Christensen, who is a 2020 grad from St. Ben's and St. John's. Um, Maya and Emily, do you want to quickly introduce yourselves and maybe give a little bit of background about yourselves before we start the conversation? I'm Maya Christensen, a recent grad of St. Ben St. John's, um, graduated with a degree in communication, and I have been working in news media for the past two years. I'm Professor Emily Berg-Pop. Um, I am a professor in the communication department and the gender studies department. And so I teach classes in rhetoric and argumentation, and then I teach upper division classes in gender and voice and women's history, and then also freedom of speech and First Amendment law. Um, I've been, I'm an assistant professor on the tenure track. I go up for tenure next year, um, and I've been at CSBSJU for almost 10 years now. So a while. Excited to be here. Yeah, very cool. Well, well, thank you for sharing. And again, thank you for being here. Um, so as you're both aware, we're going to be talking about misinformation, disinformation, fake news, media consumption, all that fun stuff today. And so I guess we'll just kind of hop right into it. Um, wondering if you could both tell us about your media consumption habits and maybe how those have evolved or changed over time. Um, and we can start with Maya. I think this is an interesting time to be having this conversation because specifically for me, the pandemic has greatly changed my media consumption habits. Um, I feel like I am constantly plugged in, constantly being overwhelmed with this just influx of information. Um, and in terms of what I'm consuming, it ranges, I'd say it's mainly through social media, um, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know, a few of those big ones. Um, but also online news media, um, websites, um, emails, even newsletters, uh, broadcast journalism. It ranges, but I would say the biggest media consumption <clears throat> habits that I formed are through social media, which I think is partially my fault that I've become so addicted and so plugged in, but also, uh, partially the fault of the technology behind social media and the, the algorithms that 
are keeping me so addicted and so, you know, wanting to come back for more. Right. Well, and fault or no fault. I mean, I think it, it speaks to how people are also consuming the news these days. Um, so whether that's, whether that's a positive or a negative piece that people are consuming news off of social media, it's definitely a fact. I feel like particularly among our generation, um, Dr. Pop, what would you say your news media consumption habits look like? Yeah, well, I, I have sort of an interesting different perspective on this, right? Because just I'm going to date myself, right? Because of my age. Um, but I, I grew up um, sort of at the advent of social media, right? Social media really entered on the scene when I was in college. And so I have seen the transition, right, between the different usage usages of different types of media. Um, and I think that necessarily changes over time, right? As Maya said, new technologies, how we access technology, right? We can have the news on our phone now where that didn't used to be the case. It sort of necessarily changes over time. My consumption is sort of this bridge between the two, right? I try to, I get most of my, my news and my access to information on the internet, as most of us do. Right. But I try to access, you know, I try to look at the top stories in a, a national paper every day. My go to is usually the Washington Post. I try to look at local headlines. Right. I like the Star Tribune. I think they're a really good local uh, newspaper to, to tap into. But then, like Maya said, I, I get a lot of mine through social media, too. And I think that what is so what is so key about understanding the fact that that that's the reality for so many people is that. One thing that has become more and more important is that responsible consumption of the information, right? Whereas before, when it's when it's vetted by a news organization, when it has a news organization has high editorial and ethical standards, you can trust a certain amount of information that comes from that source. When you're getting most of your information from social media, it makes it that much more important that you have those media literacy skills and you have... Um, it's incumbent on you, right, as a consumer of media to be responsible and engaging with that material. And that is something new. That is something that your generation and, and everyone that is getting access to information on social media now has to confront that, say, our parents and grandparents, right, when they would re sit down and read a whole newspaper or they would sit down and they would watch them broadcast nightly news didn't have to contend with, right, this influx of information. So I think that we're in a, we're in a new time um, and it's an adjustment, but we all sort of have to have all of these new habits as, as Maya suggested as well. Right. I think it's, I think it's so interesting because it's almost this, this interesting conundrum that's creative uh, created is that we have all of these new different resources to consume media. And there's so much information out there which can be an awesome tool for staying informed and knowing what's happening. Um, but it can also be kind of dangerous um, if not all that information is vetted carefully. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll be getting into that today too. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I know you both talked about a lot of different forms of media and how you classify them differently. Like, like you said, Dr. Pop, you can read um, the newspaper beginning to end and you can feel that that information is vetted. A lot of times in social media, like Maya was talking about, consuming. And I think Elliot and I consume a lot as well. Um, you can't always rely on that to be vetted. Um, and something we've been thinking about is kind of the misinformation side of it. And then the disinformation side of why you can't exactly trust every media source that you're reading or consuming. 
Um, could you both speak a bit about misinformation and disinformation, the difference between the two, and then maybe where you have seen the trends in that and maybe like what types of journalism you're seeing that occur in um, or different examples? Sure, I can, I can start with maybe a, trying to help us understand the difference between the two and then maybe go to Maya for, for the practical experience in the journalism world. The, the difference between misinformation and disinformation is really about intent. Right, so misinformation is, I think about the root word of being misinformed, right? It is information that you might share or that you might see that has been shared that is wrong, that is factually inaccurate, but is not necessarily intentionally wrong in terms of its being shared, right? You're not purposefully necessarily sharing information that's wrong. You either believe it or you haven't done a good enough job fact-checking and you share it and that's what misinformation is. Disinformation with a D is has more intent behind it, right? It's this idea that you're sharing information that you know is not true, that you know is not accurate, and you are purposefully sharing it. And but the two relate, right? Disinformation leads to misinformation because we have a trend out there in social media that you know we saw this with with what Russia has done in the 2016 and the 2020 election, they, they specifically create disinformation and then they put it into social media networks where they know that people might believe it and then share it as misinformation, right? And so they, the two feed off one another and it makes it really difficult to consume media and fact check when you're being flooded with information that you don't know whether or not you can trust it, right? Which makes it really difficult. I think that was a great explanation of the difference between the two. This is an interesting question to apply to specifically myself and my experiences in newsrooms. Um, and I have to be subjective in my answer because I can only speak to my experiences and the two newsrooms that I've been in. Um, and those experiences were vastly different, I will say. Um, I think in terms of I've, I've never I've never been in a newsroom that is purposefully spreading disinformation. I did work at a local station where it was understaffed and there was just not enough and I was coming in as someone who had no experience in a newsroom ever before. So having being understaffed, there wasn't someone looking over my shoulder at my work. And so, I know that there were articles that I put out that should have had a like head editor checking those things because I was young. I didn't know, you know, if I shouldn't say I didn't know if anything I was putting out was factual. It was. And I had, you know, I would do my interviews. I would do my background checks. But still, the fact that I went in there unexperienced, there should have been someone, someone who had experience, you know, maybe taking me in. It's just being a mentor. The overall point that I'm trying to make to this is that I think although a lot of misinformation and disinformation is spread nationally with those larger organizations, uh, we also need to be looking at our local news media outlets where there aren't necessarily people above the reporters who are fact-checking or just making sure this work is 
legit. And I know that is an easy way for misinformation and disinformation to be spread in the community. And I saw that firsthand in that local radio station. Um, as for the larger scale newsroom that I worked in, um, you know, it was incredibly, it was a great experience. There were a lot of professionals who had very high journalistic standards. And so my work was constantly double-checked, um, fact-checked, went through all the steps. And it was only through there that I saw how news outlets should be working and acting to make sure that we are presenting to the public the correct facts, the true information, and not, you know, becoming an outlet to spread misinformation, even if it's not purposeful. No, I, I think that's great. And I think that especially for listeners, I think that that's really important insight too into when you hear people talking about reputable news organizations and why you should be trying to look into more of those um, organizations and derive information from those. It's, it's stemming from that they have these vetting processes of information and journalistic rigor, um, you know, versus when you look at a smaller local news organization, maybe, you know, kind of understaffed and underpaid they just don't quite have the resources to do that, which, you know, that's another trend that's happening with news media all over the country is the St. Cloud Times. I don't know how many staff writers they had at one point, but I, I think it's around five now, um, which just makes it a lot harder to um, kind of fulfill that same standard. Um, you know, Elliot, just to, to add to that, I think that one of our biggest hurdles and biggest challenges is exactly that trend. I think that's one of the biggest travesties in our media landscape today is the shrinking of local news organizations. You're seeing it all over the country where local newspapers are either going under or being bought by big national media conglomerates. And what Maya is pointing out, right, this understaffing and underfunding is, is a real issue because it's the local reporters that have the connections in the community. Right? They're the ones that know the, the people and the leaders and they know the stories and they know what's important to those communities. And without that local reporting, we really are not getting the information that we really deserve right? as we, as we exist in these communities. So just a, just a plug, um, right? subscribe to your local newspaper, pay attention to your, to your local news organizations because they play a really key role in information um, dissemination and also just sort of um, right setting the agenda and leading the conversation within communities. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel that pretty, pretty keenly, honestly, I remember the first time that I started trying to be informed was after my, I think after my senior year of high school, I graduated and was trying to keep up with, well, Donald Trump would have just been inaugurated that year. It was 2017. I was trying to keep up and I started listening to the daily which is a New York Times podcast. And so I only started following news at all on a national level, which I feel is incredibly, incredibly common, especially for kind of our generation right now. Um, now, this is, a, this is a big question, but I think it's a really interesting one. I mean, it kind of gets into psychology, it gets into communication, all of this. Um, but why do you feel that people are so susceptible to spread misinformation online? I mean, after, whether it's disinformation originally or misinformation, um, depending on the intent of the news source. I mean, we, if you are on Facebook with your relatives and family members, if you're on Twitter, you see people sharing 
false information. It's it's not on it's not uncommon. It's incredibly common. You know, one example, there's Marjorie Taylor Greene now occupies a seat in the House of Representatives. She's a supporter of QAnon, which I'm hoping maybe we can dig into QAnon a little bit this this episode, because I think that's fascinating and kind of horrifying simultaneously. But yeah, why why are people so susceptible to spread myths and disinformation? So there are a couple of, of communication theories that can help explain some of those reasons. I think there are a lot of reasons, right? As you say, that's a very big question. Um, but a few of maybe the most prominent that I can think of, and then and then I look forward to hearing what Maya says too, are one, there's this theory that is called cognitive dissonance. And you might've heard of this in some of your classes. I, I talk to my students about this a lot. And it's this idea that people like being comfortable in their beliefs, right? And they're uncomfortable when they're challenged or when those beliefs are challenged. And so co what cognitive dissonance is, is essentially this discomfort that results when you hold two conflicting beliefs or attitudes in your mind at the same time. And so when we're confronted with something new or uncomfortable and it conflicts with something we thought we already knew or we thought we believed, that makes us uncomfortable, right? And so there's a, there's a, um, there's a tendency to not want to exist in that space. We don't like being uncomfortable. And so we tend to, to go to information that we feel is um, akin to what our worldview might be, right? Or what our beliefs might be, which is potentially, now that I think about it, a second, a second potential reason is this idea that we all have our own worldviews. We all have our own approaches to the world and to the way that we think. And those come from a variety of places, right? And they shape our perceptions. So the appeal of conspiracy theories like QAnon, right? Or, or spreading disinformation or, or wanting to believe it is that that information can sometimes affirm what we want to be true based on our worldview, right? Uh, another communication theory that can help explain this a little bit is something called confirmation bias. And that's this, this tendency of people to favor information that confirms their existing beliefs, right? So people tend to give more weight to evidence that confirms their beliefs and undervalues evidence or information that could disprove their beliefs. And so we actively seek out information that confirms what we want to be true. And we ignore information that we don't want to be true. Right. And that's often displayed by recalling information or only listening to information right? selective listening that confirms it. Um, or when we interpret it, we might interpret it in a in a more biased way. Right. From a different approach. The last thing I'll, I'll say, and then I want to jump to Maya, is that um, in rhetoric, which is the area in which I teach, there is a ancient rhetorical theory um, that is written by a Greek rhetorician right, from 2000 years ago that claims that the, docu the document is called the encomium of Helen. And it claims that speech, words, information can act like a drug, can manipulate your mind, right, um, can become addictive, and that speech can also act like witchcraft, right, and can bewitch you. And so oftentimes we, we might see that playing out, right? As we see people engaging with this misinformation and with conspiracy theories, we see them, they want to believe something. It confirms their own opinions. It confirms their own beliefs. And then whoever is saying it, right, whatever the information is or per potentially the speaker themselves 
can also have that sort of influence on someone's brain and it can change them and appeal to them in a way that we don't always realize is as powerful as it is. That's what, that's what comes to mind when I think about why people are susceptible, right, to things like conspiracy theory and spreading disinformation is it's, it's a comfort, it's a worldview issue, and it's also the power of information and the power of speech and what it can do to people. I think that was a great explanation of maybe more of the psychology behind why people are so susceptible to spread misinformation. Um, and I'm going to take it a little bit of a different direction and talk maybe a bit more about access. Um, so in terms, and in terms of social media mainly, and when spreading misinformation, disinformation, you know, whether you believe it to be true or you know it's false, um, I think it partially comes from a place of laziness and indifference. Um, and I'm sure you've heard the stereotype of like lazy Americans, right? Um, it kind of seems that there's this understanding from other cultures outside of ours in the US that we are a very fast moving country. You know, we want our information now, we wanna do it now. We just, in general, we do life quickly, right? Um, and so when I say laziness, I think for a lot of people, it comes, you know, from good intentions. Uh, wanting to be an advocate, to share information, to be heard, to make your voice heard. Um, so when I say laziness, I mean that in terms of people aren't necessarily willing to take those extra steps to put that effort into fact-checking of Googling certain, story, certain stories, um, researching different news outlets to make sure that that information that they are consuming and sharing is true. Because when it's, you know, we have access to so much information and when it's so easy to share something and make your voice heard, when you can just click a button, you know, why, why take that extra time to find truth in it? Um, especially when there's just so much, we're overwhelmed. You know, I, and this is, this, a lot of this comes from personal experience. I know I've shared plenty of stories where I haven't taken the time to go back and double check the sources. And I think, yeah, I think partially that stems from a laziness of wanting to just put my information out there right now, do it now, because that's just kind of the culture we live in. Um, and I also think this is where indifference comes in. So if you're sharing information, specifically misinformation, you believe it to be true, um, and you share that, the content might not necessarily affect you that greatly if you aren't taking the time to dig in deeper. Does that make sense? So I also think this is where the intersection of privilege follows too. Uh, you know, it can be easy to participate or not participate just by clicking a button because, you know, we have all this information. And I think if something were to greatly affect you or to a certain extent, extent you'd maybe do a bit more research before sharing that or before being an advocate. So I just think there's so many different intersections of, you know, whether it's just our society not willing to put extra effort in. And this is kind of something we talked about in the beginning of this podcast. Um, we're navigating this. We don't know, this is all new to us. We don't necessarily know what we're doing. Um, and I think we just kind of have to be 
advocates of changing the way that we intake news and teaching ourselves how to fact check, how to just make sure what we're consuming is true and make sure what we're sharing is true. Yeah, because it's there's just so much information and it's hard to navigate and we're all learning. You know, something Maya said too about the her first point um, about uh, laziness. You know, the reality is media media companies know that, right? And they specifically design headlines to get clicks, right? And there's a there's a spectrum of media outlets. You know, there's there are some that have very high ethical rigorous journalistic standards, right? And we can we can probably all name some of those outlets. But then there, there are more outlets that either exist entirely online or cable news or, or some of the more partisan outlets, right? That know that they will get people to click on things if headlines are more emotional, if images are more extreme. And because we're lazy, right? And they know that media consumers are lazy and will click on it and share it if they like it or if it speaks to them, that profit-driven motive of getting more clicks on the story because then you can tell your advertisers that you got more clicks on the story, right? Is also a part of this narrative. It's not just on consumers, it's on media outlets as well to make sure that they are helping us navigate through this because that's you know a reality that especially has exploded on social media as media outlets know that if they can get things shared through the algorithms, right? That that brings in more profit. And so that profit-driven motive, I think, is really important to consider too. Right. Well, and I, I think that that definitely plays into those those theories of communication that you were touching on too. When you were speaking, I was reminded of this phenomenal podcast by the New York Times, Rabbit Hole, that kind of specifically explores YouTube's old algorithm. I think they've since updated it. Um, but this tendency to not, we don't like to have these kind of parallel or excuse me, intersecting truths that maybe don't align well. Um, instead, we'd like to have things neatly organized so that it kind of fits into our worldview. And the algorithm essentially kind of sucks people in down this, you know, the rabbit hole is, is what they called it, um, by essentially confirming these theories. And it's this psychological piece. And for YouTube, it was enormously profitable. And for media companies all over, it's enormously profitable. So I think that's that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I think something that came to mind for me listening um, to you talk about bias to my talking about laziness um, is just kind of this inevitable pattern. At some point, you're going to misstep and you'll repost something that you didn't completely vet or you'll consume media that maybe it was clickbait, um, but you read it anyways and maybe you spread it as your own. Um, so then which makes me think, like, what is the line of accountability? Like, what is controlling what um, is keeping media sources accountable. Um, and I think for a lot of people, when they think of speech, they think of the First Amendment, which I know Dr. Pop, you know, um, and teach classes on this. Um, but I'm curious, what role does the First Amendment have, and specifically freedom of speech have in misinformation? Um, can people just say whatever they want without a consequence? Is there a line where the First Amendment um, comes and intersects? So there are a couple of things that come to mind uh, with that question, and, and you're probably not going to like the answer. Um, but the reality is, is that the internet is really, really hard to regulate, right? And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that it is not bound by any sort of physical space, right? There's so much content. It transcends national borders. 
there's really no way to control content, even if we wanted to, right? There's no practical way to do it. And we see social media companies, you know, use YouTube as, a, as an example, really struggling with that, right? There are copyright issues, for example, on YouTube. And YouTube has a whole staff, right, that is, that is looking at their site and constantly trying to take down copyrighted information that gets posted there. But in reality, there's just no, there's no way that they can possibly catch everything, right? So it's really hard to regulate. There's too much information. In the history of the country too, and this is more unique to the United States, we have a history of believing that the government, right? The, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, okay? The government cannot abridge your right to freedom of speech. Right? Because we value discourse, we value having lots of opinions out there. There's a there's an idea that's written in a dissent in one of the earliest free speech cases. It's called the Marketplace of Ideas uh, by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, which is this idea that ideas should act like a marketplace, and we should get as many ideas out there as possible. And eventually, our communities are going to choose certain ideas over others, right? And that's going to change over time. And that's the value of free speech. But it's important to remember that. The First Amendment is about the government regulating speech, not about private companies, right? So social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, right? They can operate as private companies and they can abridge whatever speech they want to, right? Which is why you oftentimes see them having very explicit policies about what types of speech they will allow on their platform and what types of speech they will not allow. That's not to say that, you know, your question was, can people say anything? That's not necessarily true. There are certain types of speech that the government has said, that Congress has said, and the Supreme Court has said over the, over the decades is not allowed, right? So speech that incites violence, for example. Um, there's a legal standard that uh, was actually written about in the, in the recent Trump impeachment proceedings. This standard is actually in the documents of impeachment. And it is this idea that if your speech intends to incite the phrases imminent lawless action, action that is lawless, right? And that is imminent, that is about to occur. If your speech incites that, that's illegal, right? And so that's what uh, they used in the arguments for impeachment, the impeachment of Donald Trump was that on January 6th, he gave a speech outside the Capitol where he said, go to the Capitol, right? And his supporters went to the Capitol and then it became violent, okay? So you can't incite imminent lawless action. You can't engage in speech that is called issuing a true threat, which the standard is, there's a definition of it, but it's basically if the reasonable, if a reasonable person would assume that this threat is a valid threat, right? That's considered a true threat, that's illegal. You can't engage in speech that's called fighting words, Right, which is speech that is said between two people, usually in a face-to-face -face context that sort of incites, right? Those are fighting words, right? I might react to you because of something you said. And you can't engage in obscene speech, speech that qualifies as obscenity. And actually that's a really interesting part of our First Amendment history because the regulation of the internet started by trying to regulate pornography, right? Because it's a type of speech that we don't want circulating and we don't want children having access to. And so some of the earliest laws that try to regulate speech on the internet actually have to do with pornography and obscenity. So there are certain categories of speech that, that are allowed to be censored, but those, def those categories are very narrow and they have very specific legal definitions. And the reality is, is that most speech is allowed.
right? So we've got two things going on. We've got one, on the one hand, we've got this idea that for the most part, we consider speech to be free, right? We have very narrow categories of speech that might be censored. And on the other hand, we have this idea that the internet is just too hard to regulate. And so it's a vicious cycle, right? Once you start regulating speech, then you get into trouble with constitutional issues. So then you roll it back, but then speech is allowed to flourish, right? Certain types of speech is allowed to flourish. That's sort of the, the legal first amendment issue behind it. I, I, I will say though, in, in, in finishing up, I teach my students that, so I teach my freedom of speech classes in ethics common seminar course. And the reason for that is because I encourage my students to think to themselves, well, this might be legal. I might be able to say this. I can say this. But should I say it? Ought I say it, right, is a very different question. And so whether or not speech is legal or not and can flourish online, I think necessarily has to be followed up with the question of, yes, but is it ethical for me to do so, right? Is it ethical for me to, to engage in that speech? And that's another part of it that is not the legal part, but I think is a necessary conversation to have as a community. I just want to add, um, I don't know if it was ever stated, and Emily, I'm pulling this from your freedom of speech class, the actual definition or a working definition, I suppose, of freedom of speech as the ability to express yourself without attacking someone else's identity. So, and that just stems back to your question. Sure, I could repost this. I could say this. Should I? Am I hurting someone else by saying this? Yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting response. Um, and it's, I think, a misconception that there is some, like, overarching accountability that all these media firms answer to, um, which seems to just be completely false with the except with very minimum um, exceptions. Yeah, and so I wonder if we could talk a little bit of some of kind of the specifics of this past these past few months. So um, I know that kind of major media outlets like YouTube, like Twitter, like Facebook, we're really trying to do a better job combating mis and disinformation, especially after a 2016 election cycle that was heavily um, influenced by mis and disinformation from a lot of a lot of different outlets, including including Russia. Um, and so I'm wondering if we can unpack some of the pieces that, that took place in this last election cycle as they relate to kind of this freedom of speech and i know that you had mentioned private media entities can have discretion to regulate these pieces there was kind of this like really interesting um piece that happened with hunter biden's laptop which was kind of the the big story this past election cycle in october and youtube and facebook and twitter handled this very differently um donald trump is now banned from twitter I wonder if we can just kind of take some of these principles and apply them to what we're seeing in the last few months, which is a really broad question, but I'm interested to see where it goes. So Hunter Biden's laptop is a really good example of disinformation. When you ask national security experts, right, and when you hear people um, in, in, within the FBI and within the Department of Justice talk about that story, that originated right from outside of our borders as a piece of disinformation. So worthy to investigate potentially, right? But also a really good example of how a story that is potentially made up can then explode and infiltrate 
right into into other areas of of communication. Um, Twitter, you know, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and the social media companies that have all banned Donald Trump are completely consistent with the history of the country and also uh, with the law. Okay, because social media companies, and this is actually a really interesting debate that I often have with my students, there's a free speech concept called public forums. And it's this idea that out in public, publicly owned spaces, right, take a, a public park, right, there's this idea that that should be a public forum. That's a space in which people can come together and engage in discourse, right, or public streets. You have protests and marches and rallies. Social media is not that. Right? It has not been classified as a, as a public forum. It is not owned by the government. And so because of that, when social media companies ban users, they are acting within their own rules and regulations and not under any purview under the First Amendment. Right? It is not Twitter, Facebook, they are not run by the government and private companies can do whatever they want. So when I think, I think Twitter was maybe the first to ban Donald Trump after the January 6th um, insurrection, and then in concert with a lot of the misinformation he was posting about election fraud, um, they cited their rules of conduct, right? They said, we have this policy, you cannot incite violence. We think this information incited violence. And so we are therefore shutting down the account. It was within their own private company's um, uh, policies, right? And interestingly, after, when we talk about the spread of information, misinformation, after Donald Trump was was banned on many of these social media outlets. There was a study that was done by a public policy uh, firm in San Francisco that showed that something like 73% of the spread of misinformation online dropped after Trump was banned. And that's not necessarily because of Trump individually, right? But because of the algorithms, because of the people that would share things he would post, because of the trend, right? And that's that's a scary thing when we have, um, you know, not getting partisan at all, but when we have leaders like Donald Trump or leaders like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right, who are openly pushing misinformation and disinformation, it has more credibility. We trust our political leaders have more of a platform. We trust their voices more. And because it has more credibility, it spreads much, much faster, right? And it's dangerous potentially to some of our social media ecosystems as we think about how this information spreads. So yeah, I get that question a lot. Well, can Twitter do that, right? Doesn't he have a right to free speech? Like, yeah, they actually can, right? Because they're they're not a public forum. No one banned him from making a speech outside the Capitol, right? He was banned from a private company's website. And those are two key things to, to keep as distinct from one another. I have a question for Emily real quick. Um, I feel like we're at such an interesting point in our society because we're seeing firsthand um, the different areas of government control over the internet, social media. So Emily, do you see in the future there being more government control specifically over social media? Do you think bills will be passed that will grant you know, our leaders authority over it to make decisions over those private entities? That's a great question, Maya. There's, there are, so there's a law, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, right, with the law, but there's a law um, that comes from the Communications Decency Act, which was passed in 1996, called Section 230. 
And you might have heard of this in the news because it's been in the news quite a bit over the past six months to a year. But what section 230 of this law says is that if you are, and in the 90s, it was internet service providers like AOL, right? Now it's social media companies. If you are an ISP, an internet service provider, you are providing access to information on the internet. If you are an ISP, you are considered protected under section 230 under a category that makes you um, uh, a distributor of information, but not a publisher, okay? So when you distribute information, you are, the argument is that as an ISP, you're not creating original content, you're just sending it out. And what section 230 does is it protects you from liability. So this comes from a case in the 90s that was someone, um, someone on AOL, on America Online, who sued AOL because of something that happened to him from another user, okay? And AOL came back and said, no, there's no way we can control what our users do, right? That's impossible to do. And it went up to the Supreme Court and they affirmed that, yeah, this, this part of this law, Section 230, that's sort of necessary because there's no possible way for internet service providers to be responsible for every piece of content that goes on their websites, right? This is why I mentioned YouTube and copyright before, right? This is why YouTube tries to take down copyrighted materials, but they don't get in trouble with the government if there is something copyrighted, as long as they're being good Samaritans and they're trying to do it. In the past six months or so, there have been uh, many lawmakers who have argued that we need to get rid of Section 230 that we need to get rid of that protection from social media companies and internet service providers because of the spread of disinformation. And oftentimes, right, it comes, it comes from both ends of the political aisle, actually. On the one end, on the, on the more progressive end, it's we need to try to control misinformation. We need to try to control threats. We need to try to protect our most vulnerable populations. Women of color, for example, are harassed and threatened so much online um, in an exponential amount, right, compared to many other um, identity groups, especially journalists and politicians. So on the one hand, there's a protection angle. We need to protect people from hate speech. We need to protect people from threatening speech. On the other end, there's a free speech argument, right? You're censoring me. You banned Donald Trump on Twitter, right? You're censoring certain voices. You shouldn't have the power to do that. So we should take away that power. And that's a debate. There are hearings that are happening in the House and the Senate right now. That's a debate that's going on. My personal opinion, I have my doubts that Section 230 will go away completely. I don't know if it's feasible, right? I don't know if it's a realistic ask of these big tech companies to be responsible for all of the information online, but it is being slowly chipped away at. There was a law that was signed last year um, that aimed, that was focused on sex trafficking, and it chipped away at Section 230 a little bit. And what that law said, and it was signed by Donald Trump, said that if you're an ISP, if you're a social media company, let's say Craigslist or something like that, and you are aware that there is sex trafficking happening in your space, you have to take it down and you can get in trouble for not taking it down, right? So that's a little bit of a chipping away at, if you know about this content and you know it's there and you don't do something about it, you can, you know, you can be fine or you can get in trouble for it. So we're slowly walking that back. I don't know how, how far it'll go right for some of those practicality reasons that I that I mentioned it's a fascinating debate that's happening right now though yeah I think that's really interesting I've definitely heard section 230 thrown around but I never had a firm understanding of what that actually meant so thank you for clarifying 
Um, but I know when you're talking about the spread of misinformation really dropping when someone like Donald Trump's account um, is revoked, it makes me think of topics that aren't necessarily isolated to one person. So like QAnon comes to mind of like, maybe in the incidence of insurrection, it is like Donald Trump tweeted, he gave this speech, this event occurred. And it seems very linear. Um, with something like QAnon, I struggle to understand like how um, can a conspiracy theory, whether it's QAnon, whether it's Antifa, whatever, I mean, you name it, how can that misinformation um, be regulated or not necessarily regulated, but how can we mediate it? So this is something that Maya has said a couple of times that I want to hone in on. Because the internet is such a vast space, because information spreads so easily, because we are so lazy, right? As Maya said, because we are so disinterested, because we have all of these elements of privilege of access. In my personal opinion, it's incumbent on us to stop it, right? Conspiracy theories have been around for ever since the beginning of time, right? The spread of misinformation has been around since the beginning of time. Rumors, right? Think about just the basic aspect of rumor. That, that's sort of what that is, right? It is incumbent on us as consumers of media and also as just good citizens, right? To try to be educated enough in media literacy, in ethics, in asking the right questions and how to fact check to try to stem the spread of it, right? And part of that, part of that is about education, right? I'm, I'm biased, I'm a professor at a liberal arts college, right? But I, I truly see that there is a value in the liberal arts, not just because it teaches you, you get a certain major, right? And you graduate with a major and you get a job, that's part of it. But the real value of the liberal arts is about how you think. It teaches you how to analyze. It teaches you how to ask questions. It exposes you to multiple worldviews and multiple viewpoints. Um, and because of that, that level of education might allow you to engage with information in society in a different way, right? When you've been when you've been trained, when you've been taught to ask questions and to think critically. And the phrase I use with my public speaking students is listen as a doubter. Don't just automatically believe something, doubt it first, ask the right questions and then believe it, right? Once you've had your questions answered. But it also, right, that's college. It starts younger than that, right? There are countries in Europe right now that are mandating media literacy education in their public education systems in like elementary school and middle school, right? My son, I have, I have a five and a seven-year-old uh, sons at home, one's in kindergarten and one is in second grade. And my second grader right now is being taught about opinion writing and is doing activities with his teacher about the difference between fact and opinion. And he brought home a couple of these workshops. I was like, that is so cool. I teach my college students that, right? How to differentiate between the difference, between the different types of statements. That's what I mean, it's incumbent on us. It's about education, it's about ethics, it's about knowing your community and it's about understanding what your motives might be. Right. And if we can all ask each other those questions and also hold each other accountable, I do this in the classroom all the time. Right. And the student says something, I say, well, where, what was your source for that? Right. Let's engage with that a little bit more. Let's figure out where that came from, because those questions are what are going to get, get us out of this. Right. And if you're not asking those questions, then you're more susceptible to the spread of the conspiracy theory. And then it, it, it has the potential to take over. Right. As, as something like QAnon has. I just want to share um, in terms of us as the consumers being the ones who, you know, we need to be holding ourselves accountable. 
and the media. And in, in order to do that, I think we as a public need to learn how to fact check for ourselves and not only just following, um, you know, or I guess assuming that the media outlets that we're consuming are fact checking. Um, so I wanted to share what a lot of journalists use called the CRAAP test, C-R-A-A-P. Uh, and that stands for C is currency. So is what I'm consuming, is that current? What What is the timeline of this? Um, R, relevance. Uh, relevance is interesting. I think it also kind of applies to privilege too. Is it relevant to me? Who is this, who is this affecting? Uh, a, accuracy. Is it accurate? Where is the source of this? That also stems from the second A, which is authority. Who is providing this? Does this person have any credibility? Uh, where are they coming from? And then the last one, purpose. What is the purpose of the news that you're consuming or that you're sharing? Um, so that's kind of the, the test that a lot of journalists will follow. There's also, if you don't like to use the term crap, um, there's also, Emily, I know you've shared this one, ACT UP. So A, author, who is the author who's writing this? C, currency. T, truth is what I'm saying, is what I'm consuming legit. Um, U stands for unbiased and P stands for privilege. So both of those intersect and essentially are following, you know, the same guidelines, but just questions to apply to the information that you're receiving. Um, and I think this is a good way for us as consumers to just sort of begin essentially this transition to fact-checking the information that we are receiving. You know, to add to that really quickly, there's another element that goes beyond fact-checking in terms of how you engage with information. And that is knowing the techniques of propaganda. One of the things that has been happening a lot and, and again, propaganda has been around since the beginning of time, right? But understanding what argumentative fallacies are, understanding when there are certain techniques of propaganda like fear-based appeals, glittering generalities, right? These emotional-based appeals, being educated in how to identify when something, it trends toward propaganda, when something is potentially gaslighting, when something is engaging in some of the more common argumentative fallacies is a necessary part of that too, because something might be true, something might be factual, but is being presented to you in a manipulative way. And when it's being presented to you in a manipulative way, it impacts your beliefs, right? And it potentially impacts your actions as well. So that's another, another thing to add to Maya's, um, Maya's advice about fact-checking too. I really like those, those acronyms. Those are super helpful. Crap. That's that, <laughs> very fun too. Um, and I, I wonder kind of stemming from that, Maya, like working in journalism, what else are we, what else are we kind of missing in this conversation? What are some aspects of, you know, broadcast journalism that we've kind of neglected in this conversation or something that might be helpful for listeners to know? This is an interesting question. And again, I just want to reiterate my answer is subjective. Uh, I can only speak to the experiences I have with newsrooms. Um, but one thing that I have been thinking about in terms of holding the media accountable and just essentially the way that we consume um, our information 
and kind of the questions we aren't asking and what what is changing in the sphere is I think with this growing rate of fake news, mis misinformation, disinformation, um, a lot of news media outlets are starting to hold themselves accountable by sharing with the public and um, consumers how they fact check, what that means, um, holding or just taking time to explain what the process is. And I think that's super important because for a long time, I think we have maybe given these media outlets the benefit of the doubt or just assumed what they were saying was right. Um, and now there's a lot of intersection, intersecting parts of that with the rise of social media and spread of fake news. But um, that's one thing that I think is changing and that I think is a smart move on the part of media outlets to share the process because unless you're in the newsroom, you don't know how they're getting their information. Um, so I think there's this level of transparency that is changing for the better. And again, I can only speak to the few newsrooms I've worked in and whatnot, but um, in terms of the local setting, that is what I have seen. Uh, nationally, I can't speak to that, but I think that's important. And um, I hope that level of transparency continues. I think that that's a really important piece. And it, it's a question that I think a lot of people don't even think to ask because you aren't working in the industry, but you're consuming the industry. So it's kind of this disparity in thought processes of how you, this information comes to be. Um, do either of you have some closing thoughts or last remarks you'd want to add? You know, Maya ended her last statement with sort of a positive, right, outlook on this is that there, times are changing, trends are changing, companies are becoming more responsible. I think that one of the tendencies that we we have when we talk about social media is, is to talk about how negative it is, right? And there's a lot of negative aspects, right, of social media that we could we could do multiple podcast episodes about. But I think it's also important for us to understand that the spread of information on social media, as long as you are engaging with it in a responsible way, in an ethical way, has an enormous amount of power too, right? And we've seen this with Black Lives Matter. We've seen this when um, we have, you know, videos going viral of, of, of police shootings that are being live streamed on Facebook, right, with Philando Castile and St. Paul. We see this all over the world as people are able to communicate with one another and, and speak out against injustice and understand what is happening in other parts of the world. There is a, there is a real value to the connection that we can have with people, right, through the sharing of information on social media, again, as long as we're sort of following these ethical standards and these ethical rules and doing it responsibly, I think we should also remember that there's a lot of power in this new medium that we have that can be used for good uh, if, if we want it to be. I also just wanna, um, going off of that, the good that's coming from this, uh, to remind everyone that, you know, we're still learning. This is a changing landscape. Um, and I have to keep reminding myself that because I tend to, feel guilty about the way that I consume media or work as even working in journalism, feeling like, you know, maybe this 
I feel like I'm getting a little bit off topic off topic. Anyways, the point I was trying to make is that, you know, remember to cut yourself some slack. Um, it's a tough time and it's, yeah, it's a growing, changing landscape and we're all learning how to navigate this. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I appreciate those kind of closing thoughts. And, um, you know, I, I, I agree that it does seem like these conversations are kind of trending in a positive way, just in, in terms of even just, you know, Regan and I, we're both political science. We're always kind of thinking about the, the political implications of these conversations. And in the 2016 um, general election cycle, I mean, misinformation and disinformation were rampant on social media. And this year, because of, you know, media outlets having these conversations, they were actually more intentional they had a game plan for how they were going to tackle these questions. Like Maya mentioned, um, they're actually journalistic outlets posting what are their standards, what's the process, and they have to do this to, to be relevant and to be respected, which that's, you know, so there are new and emerging um, problems in a new and emerging landscape with some solutions that seem to be helping. But I want to thank both of you a ton for this conversation today. I've really genuinely enjoyed it. Super, super interesting stuff. Learned a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so we hope that you really enjoyed that episode. I know for Elliot and I, we really value this conversation. They both had great insights and were really enjoyable to talk with. Um, I know for Elliot and I, we always like to have a little bit of a takeaway, something that we found to be exceptionally important to take away from each episode. Um, so I know for me, I wasn't super aware of laws or regulations that make sure that media is accurate or unbiased, but after this conversation, it seems like they're fairly non-existent, um, which then puts the emphasis really on the individual to make sure that everything that you're consuming, you're fact-checking yourself and you're a truth seeker and making sure that these are reliable and credible sources, whether that's through social media or journalism, wherever you get your information. So falls on us. Yeah, that's a great point. And then for me, one piece that really stood out was that CRAP test. One, because it's just a fun acronym and we love acronyms. Um, but again, that CRAP test stands for currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, and purpose. So just having that kind of criteria to go through when we evaluate a news source, because the reality is that we're doing that every day, whether it means that we're logging onto Facebook or looking at the news app or listening to a podcast, it's so important that we consider these five elements um, and how they play a role in the reporting that we consume. Um, yeah, thanks for tuning in today. We, we really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thanks for listening to I'm Glad You Asked. And with that, I'm Regan Dolezal. I'm Elliot Edeburn. And we're I'm glad, glad you, you asked. asked. Perfect. <laughs>